You are listening to audio from First Baptist Church in Fort Walton Beach. If you would like more resources or to watch our service online, please visit fbcfwb.org. Listen in as Pastor Wade helps us abide in Christ and advance the gospel through the teaching and the proclamation of God's Word. We're going to win spiritual victories. We must be more than mere spectators. In July of 1861, the stage was set for the first land battle of the Civil War between the Union Army and the Confederate Army. The battle was going to take place about 30 miles outside of Washington, D.C. So word spread, and the aristocrats in Washington, many of the politicians, decided it would be A nice day away from the capital to go and watch the Union put down this Confederate rebellion. So the upper crust of Washington society packed a picnic and made their way out to Virginia where they would watch this battle take place. The battle was... As the Southerners called it, the Battle of Manassas, the field was close to a town called Manassas. The North called it the Battle of Bull Run because of a creek that ran through the field where the battle took place. And the aristocrats called it the Picnic Battle because people took their food with them to sit and observe. Well, as the battle began... The folks watching were eating their meals and enjoying the social atmosphere. But about mid-afternoon, the southern army called in some reinforcements and the battle began to turn. And the commanders of the Union Army called for retreat. They were getting defeated. And so here are these important Washington politicians sitting there with their families, and all of a sudden, army soldiers come running by, bloody, wounded, fearful for their lives. In fact, one senator was passing out sandwiches, and an artillery shell hit his carriage and destroyed it. And all of a sudden, those spectators realize something very important. We're in the middle of a battle. This is the real deal. And they began to flee, and they began to retreat. And I think about that story often, and I think that story serves as a picture for... A large part of the American church. We've reduced Christianity to being spectators. We put on our nice clothes. We come to church. We do the church thing. And that's really all that transpires in our walk with Jesus. And because we're merely spectators, 
We're not winning spiritual battles. In fact, we are being defeated more often than not. And this morning I pray that God will use His Word to wake us up. To realize Christianity is not a spectator sport. To realize we are in the middle of a very real battle. We are engaged in spiritual warfare. And I want you to look with me in Ephesians chapter 6 as we see what God's Word has to say about the topic of spiritual warfare. So turn there with me. We are continuing our study of the book of Ephesians line by line, verse by verse. And we've made it to Ephesians chapter 6 verse 10. Ephesians Chapter 6, verse 10. I want to ask you this morning, if you're physically able to please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word, which I'll remind you is truth with no mixture of error. This is the living Word of God. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. The Bible says, finally, notice that word finally, that's important, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. Would you say we're living in an evil day? Would anybody say this is an evil day? That you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Let's pray together this morning. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. As we sang earlier, to you be the glory. You are the reason that we're here, you are the center of attention. It's all about you. We gather, Lord, to rejoice in our relationship with you. We gather to rejoice in the reality of the gospel, the good news that we can be reconciled to you through the death of your son, Christ. And now having this relationship with you, we come needy. We come hungry to be fed, to be filled We ask, Lord, that by your Spirit you would take the Word of God and apply it to our hearts, that our lives might be changed. God, use your Word this morning to help us to be reminded that Christianity is more than being spectators. God, mobilize this army called First Baptist Church that we would win spiritual victories for the glory of your great name. Well, thank you, Lord, for that grace. We ask and pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. In terms of context, notice that word finally in verse 10. That signifies that, that Paul is drawing this letter that he wrote to the first century church in Ephesus to a 
close. But before he closes the letter, he has something very important he wants to share with them. And he gives us this extended uh, passage about spiritual warfare. Now, I've, I've told you throughout this study that the book of Ephesians divides very evenly uh, in half. Chapters 1 through 3, as J. Sidlow Baxter says, are about our wealth in Christ, all the spiritual riches we have because of our relationship with Him. Uh, chapters 4 through 6 are about our walk with Christ, how we ought to live in light of all that He has done for us. And so, so J. Sidlow Baxter says you can say that Ephesians is about our, our wealth and our walk. But a lady named Ruth Paxson says there's a third part. She says that the book of Ephesians is about our wealth, our walk, and our warfare. This is such an important passage of Scripture that she wanted to highlight this as being really the, 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 the third part of this book. And Paul says, finally, and he launches into this discussion on spiritual warfare. What I want to do is I want to take verses 10 through 13, and I want to discuss this section under Four different headings. Now, just kind of a quick heads up. I don't know how this is going to turn out, but I may not finish the notes today. We may get about halfway through, okay? So if we're getting close to the end of the time and I'm only two points in, don't get nervous, okay? I'm watching the clock. You don't have to. We may cut it off in the middle. If things are rolling, we may get through today. I don't know yet. We're going to see how it goes. Uh, if we don't get through, we'll finish it next time we are together. But I, I want to discuss this passage under these four different headings. First of all, I want you to see the struggle. The struggle. Notice what it says there in verse 12. We're kind of going to go uh, forward in this passage and kind of work our way back to verse 10. But notice what he says there. In verse 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And I want you to focus your attention on that word wrestle. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers. That word wrestle is an interesting word. It was the word used in the first century of the physical sport of wrestling, where two people would come and try to try to get the other person down to the ground. The, the goal in first century wrestling was to throw a person down and subdue them to the point that you could hold them down with your hand upon their neck. That's the word being used here. Throw someone down, hold them down with your hand upon their neck. And Paul is reminding the Christians in Ephesus, and the Holy Spirit of God is reminding us today that we are engaged in a struggle. We are engaged in spiritual wrestling. And he wants us to get the, the point that, that, that this is a reality in our lives. Now notice he says there that our struggle, our wrestling... Our striving is not against flesh and blood. One of Satan's key tactics is to get our eyes off of the true enemy. And Paul's reminding us that our, our striving and struggling is not with other people. Behind the evil, behind the, the scheming of this world is the devil. He mentions there verse 11... The schemes of the devil. And the devil is the one, verse 12, who leads these rulers, these authorities, these cosmic powers over the present darkness. 
He's speaking here of spiritual warfare. So if you look there in your notes, we are engaged. And I would add this, like it or not, we are engaged in conflict with an unseen enemy. Not flesh and blood, not an enemy you can see, but an unseen enemy. And therein lies part of the the trouble when it comes to our relationship with spiritual warfare. Because we don't see it with our physical eyes, sometimes spiritual warfare can be kind of out of sight, out of mind, and we don't take it seriously. Now, there are two extremes that we want to avoid when it comes to a study and a perspective on spiritual warfare. First of all, we want to avoid being dismissive. Where you say, well, I don't really, you know, I don't, I don't get, this is kind of weird stuff, and I don't really, I don't see angels and demons, and so I'm, I'm not really, you know, I, I'm not going to think too much about spiritual warfare and kind of dismiss the reality of spiritual warfare, kind of like a spectator in Virginia in 1861. The other uh, extreme we want to avoid is that of being preoccupied with spiritual warfare, where you begin to look for demons everywhere and demonic activity every, everywhere. So we want to avoid those two extremes, but I would guess that most of us tend towards the first extreme, where we are just kind of dismissive. We, we just don't give much thought to the reality of spiritual warfare. But here's the deal. Like it or not, like it or not, you are engaged in conflict with an unseen enemy. I've been using a book for this passage in studying by a Puritan named Thomas Brooks. And the title of the book is Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. Thomas Brooks was a pastor in London and the 1500s, long time ago, and he wrote this treatise about spiritual warfare. It's very in-depth, and it's very practical, and it's very helpful. But listen to what he wrote in the preface of the book about his study of the topic of spiritual warfare. He wrote this, The strange opposition that I met with from Satan in the study of this following discourse hath put an edge upon my spirit. Knowing that Satan strives mightily to keep those things from seeing the light. That tend imminently to shake and break his kingdom of darkness. And lift up the kingdom of glory of the Lord Jesus Christ in the souls and lives of the children of men. Here's what Brooks was saying. He's saying Satan has been working overtime. Coming against me. So that I cannot get this material about spiritual warfare out. Because Satan does not want people to be awakened to the fact that spiritual warfare is real. He wants us to be dismissive. He wants us just to carry on our lives as spectators, just kind of going through the motions, not, not really aware that there is a spiritual battle that we are in. And so this passage begins with us understanding the struggle, the wrestling, not with flesh and blood, but an unseen enemy, which leads to the second heading. We've talked about the struggle, but secondly, I want to talk about the enemy's schemes. 
The enemy's schemes. What does this struggle consist of? Well, look what it says in verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes. That word is methodia in the Greek language where we get the word method from. The methods, the, the schemes, the strategies of the devil. So he comes right out and says it. The enemy is the devil. And he is scheming. He is developing methods to come against us in this warfare. So thinking about the enemy's schemes, first of all, I want us to think about the leader. Here in this passage, verse 11, Paul calls him the devil. In other places of scripture, he is called Satan, which means adversary or enemy. Now we get some insight into Satan from Isaiah chapter 14 and Ezekiel 28. Those passages use the the literary device of typology to teach us some important things about Satan as he is compared with, with wicked earthly kings. And here's what we learn in terms of a little bit of background about the devil. We learn that Satan was in heaven, created by God as an angel, high in a position of leadership of the other angels. But there came a moment that Lucifer, the angel created by God, wanted to be greater than God. He wanted to worship the glory that only God deserves. He wanted the power, the authority, and the prestige that only belonged to God. And so he led a rebellion of angels. And God cast him out of heaven. You can read about that in Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 and 9. Where Satan is pictured as a great dragon. And as he is cast out of heaven with his tail, he sweeps a third of the stars out of heaven to, to, to the earth with him. That speaks of angels that followed Satan's rebellion. Fallen angels... The Bible calls these fallen angels demons. But the leader is the devil, Satan. And he is opposed to God and opposed to God's purposes. And listen, don't miss this. He's opposed to God's people. Opposed to God's people. So let me say it like this, if if that's not clear enough. Satan hates your guts. He despises you. He despises your family. He hates your kids. He hates your marriage. He hates your church. He hates your pastor. He hates your community. He is opposed to that which is good and right and just and pure and holy. Notice it says there in the text, the schemes of the devil. And you relate that to verse 13 where it says, or verse 12 where it says, this present darkness. His schemes are dark schemes. Jesus said it like this in John chapter 10 verse 10. Jesus said that the devil has come to steal and kill and destroy. Over in 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter says, The devil is a roaring lion seeking those whom he can devour. That's who Satan is. He's always looking for an opportunity to devour you. 
He's always looking for an opportunity to destroy you. Which leads to this very important question. Well, what are Satan's schemes? How does Satan work? How does Satan attack? How does Satan destroy? Well, I believe that the names or titles given to the devil suggest the tactics that he uses. So, for example, he's called the tempter in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 5. And in Genesis chapter 3, we see that Satan in the form of a serpent comes into the Garden of Eden and he tempts Adam and Eve to eat the fruit from the tree God told them not to eat from. He twists the, the word of God. He, he caused them to doubt if God really said don't eat from that tree. He caused them to think, well, there are no consequences. He says, you will not die if you eat this fruit. And, and he lures and he tempts and Eve eats the fruit, hands it to Adam. Adam eats the fruit. Satan tempts Adam and Eve to the first sin. And that's when sin entered the world and messed everything up. Genesis chapter 3. And if you think that Satan will not tempt you, I want to direct your attention to Matthew chapter 4 where Satan tempts Jesus himself. And if Satan has the audacity to tempt the second person of the Godhead, Jesus Christ, I bet you he'll tempt you and me as well. Amen? He's a tempter. That's how he works. Back to the book by Thomas Brooks. He says that, that uh, Satan loves to, to put forth a lure while hiding the hook. You fishermen and fisherwomen know what that's all about, right? Put forth the lure. Get your attention. But hide the hook. The pain that will come from giving in to Satan's temptations. Klein Snodgrass says this about the devil, the tempter. Mention of the schemes of the devil reminds us of the trickery and subterfuge by which evil and temptation present themselves in our lives. Listen to this. Evil rarely looks evil until it accomplishes its goal. Evil rarely looks evil until it accomplishes its goal. It gains entrance by appearing attractive, desirable, and perfectly legitimate. It is a baited and camouflaged trap. And that's how Satan works. The Bible calls him the tempter. And listen to me. He's been doing this for thousands and thousands of years. Now, I'm not good at calculus. But if I practice calculus for 100 years, I'd probably be pretty decent at it, right? If I could give 100 years of my life to working on calculus, I bet I could get some things done. Satan has been perfecting his craft of temptation for thousands and thousands of years. He understands the realities of our human nature. He's very good at what he does. And again, he is bent on destruction. And so how does Satan work? He puts something in our path that's shiny and desirable, that lures us. 
but he, hire, he, he hides the hook. He hides the hook. So we got to be on guard. We'll talk about that a little bit later. Secondly, not only is he called the tempter, he's called in John 8, 44 by Jesus. He's called the father of what? Anybody know? Father of lies. How does Satan work? What are his methods or his schemes? He is a liar. He uses deceit to lead us astray, to change our perspective, our thinking that will change our actions. He is a liar. For example, he lies about happiness, how a person finds happiness. There are Millions and millions of people in our world that are looking for happiness and looking for satisfaction in all the wrong places. They have bought into the lie of the devil that you can find your happiness in this life apart from a relationship with the Creator God. And he's good at it. We buy into it. That maybe if we achieve this thing or accomplish this thing or acquire this thing, that's when we'll be happy, but it never works out. He lies about sin's consequences, just like back in the Garden of Eden. You will not die. I mean, I, got, I know God told you you'd die, for you, but you'll not die. There are no consequences. There are no limits. Do what you want to do. He lies about consequences. He lies about the nature of the battle. Again, he wants us just to be spectators and not realize we're in a battle. He makes us think the battle's with other people, doesn't he? He lies and think, helps us to think that someone else is our enemy. Instead of focusing on the true enemy. And so he's a liar. He lies about our identity. He doesn't want us to realize who we are in Christ. He lies. He lies. He lies. And we must be on guard against his lies. More about that in a moment. Third, he's called the accuser. The accuser. There in verse 11, he says there, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil... The word devil means accuser or slanderer or distorter. That's what the word devil means. So when we call him the devil, we're calling him the accuser. Over in Revelation 12, 10, he's called the accuser of the brethren. He loves to rail against God's people with accusations and with, with thoughts about, about our unworthiness and our guilt and our shame. One of Satan's primary tools for Christians is to, is to bring up their past and to bring them to a place where they just can't get past their past and they can't experience God's cleansing and move forward and serve Him because Satan keeps holding their past against them. He keeps dredging it up and accuses us. Who do you think you are sitting in First Baptist Church this morning? You shouldn't be sitting in church. I know who you are. I know what you've done. Who do you think you are trying to serve God? Who do you think you are trying to, trying to bring your family to church? And he accuses. And he distorts. And he slanders. That's who he 
is. He's the leader. As Martin Luther wrote in the classic hymn, A mighty fortress is our God. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. Listen, his craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. So we've talked about the leader, but let's just talk for a moment about the army. The army at his disposal to accomplish his evil, wicked purposes. Look what it says there in verse 12. Do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers the authorities, the cosmic powers. I want to say two things about Satan's army, his demonic army. First of all, it's well organized. These different phrases, uh, forces uh, there in verse 12. Cosmic powers, authorities, rulers, speaks probably of some sort of hierarchy in the demonic realm. This, this demonic army is well organized. Some people tie this into Daniel chapter 9 and the prince of Persia and the battle going on between Michael and the prince of Persia and, 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 and different levels of leadership among the demonic realm. But here's the reality. Satan has his troops organized to accomplish his purposes. Listen to me. Demons are real. Now look at the person sitting beside you or somewhere near you. Look at them. You can see them. They're real. Demons are just as real. Even though you can't see them, demons are real. And they're well organized and they're evil. Look in verse 12. Do not wrestle against flesh and blood, against the rulers, against the authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil. Paul doesn't want us to miss what it's all about. The devil and his army are about evil. Destruction against the purposes, the person, and the people of God. So here's the takeaway. Satan and his demons are crafty, cunning, and bent on destruction. Satan and his demons are crafty, cunning, and bent on destruction. But here's the, this is what the sermon's about. I'm going to finish here in a minute. We'll do parts three and four next time we're together. But here's the deal. We have a lot of uh, military folks, active duty and prior military service are represented in this room. And so you all understand how important... Uh, how important intelligence is when it comes to warfare that you know about the enemy so you can plan accordingly and deploy accordingly and, 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 and fight and defeat the enemy. It is so very important that you and I understand what is arrayed and who is arrayed against us. Knowledge is half the battle. Half the battle. Being awakened to the reality of spiritual warfare is half the battle. We need to put down our sandwiches, our picnics, and realize there's bloodshed and and wounded people all around us and people are fleeing for their lives and Satan is having a heyday and we are children of Almighty God called to be soldiers in the conflict. Got to wake up to the reality of spiritual warfare. So next time we get together, 
We're going to talk about how you deal with Satan as tempter. And how you deal with Satan as the father of lies. And how you deal with Satan as the accuser. And how you stand against him. You know the opposite of standing is? Fleeing or falling. And God doesn't want us as his children, as warriors in the battle. He doesn't want us to flee. And he doesn't want us to fall. He wants us to stand. And we're going to talk about some practical ways that you and I stand against the scheme of the devil and his demons. And we'll be reminded, we'll be reminded that we stand not in our strength and in our wisdom. We stand in the strength of God. Because I know I've left you in the middle of the sermon and we've talked about the evil of Satan. And it's all a little bit scary. But let me remind you a verse before we close. The Bible says, greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. Which means we can live victorious. Glorious Christian lives. Amen? Oh, we got to wake up. we got to wake up. This battle is real and it is raging. And it calls us to step away from being spectator Christians. To being Christians who stand in the strength of God. Winning spiritual victories. For the kingdom of God, the good of others. Thank you for listening. We pray you've been encouraged and inspired by God's word. May the Lord richly bless you.